Hello, and welcome to IBM Developer. I'm your host, Luke Schantz. In this edition of our Origin Story interview series, I have the pleasure to bring you a conversation with Dan Walsh. Dan is a senior distinguished engineer at Red Hat and leads the container engineering team. Hello, Dan. Thanks for taking the time to connect. Great to meet you and uh, great to have a talk. Dan, could you give a brief introduction to yourself so our listeners have a little context? I've been in the tech field for about 35 years. I've been working for Red Hat for the last 19 years. Uh, Mainly, most of my career has been on uh, around security, basically security products more than uh, necessarily security. So I'm a developer um, and the last, for many years at Red Hat, I worked on IC Linux, uh, security enhanced Linux, and uh, for the probably the past ten years, I've been working on container technology um, and basically uh, everything to do with containers at the operating system uh, level. Um, so that's what I do. And I noticed that you're giving the opening keynote at the upcoming Cloud Native Security Conference that IBM's putting on. What's your talk about? Uh, it's it's actually about container security. I actually, uh, um, people that have followed my career and stuff, I, I usually try to explain stuff in the form of coloring books. So I talk about technology and try to sort of relate it to other things. So th- this talk is uh, basically about uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears and how um, container security is really about Goldilocks at this point. And I talk about... Um, you know, if you get, uh, if you remember the Goldilocks story, Papa Bear is always too hot and Mama Bear is always too soft and Goldilocks is sort of the medium point. And I'm talking about how in container security, we're really going for Goldilocks because we want to be able to work with generalized workloads. So if you get too clo- if you get too close to Papa Bear, uh, basically everything starts to blow up and people can't get the workloads done. And if you move towards Mama Bear, then, you know, what's the purpose if you're just going to, you know, turn, a lot of people just turn off security. So to start with that is the key parts of the talk. But then um, what I've been investigating is how we can move a little closer to Papa Bear. And uh, I also put the assumption in that users only do two things. They either run the jobs or they turn off all security. And so the overall assumption I always have is that no one, no users ever increase security. They're always, uh, oh, this doesn't work. Let me turn the firewall off. Let me turn off SE Linux. Let me turn off, you know, this rule. Oh, now it works. Okay, I'm good to go. Um, so the, so in the, in the security world, we're always trying to get as much security as possible without users turning everything off. Um, so um, that that's really what the talk is about and, and generally how I'm trying to address my team right now. How do we get a little bit more secure than we've been in the past? That's interesting. And you, you mentioned you've been working on container space for 10 years. So you've really, from day one, it sounds like, been sort of on that because – I mean, it's it's yeah. not that old of a of of, of space. It's yeah, it's actually, uh, I mean, I always, when I give my talks, uh, a lot of generalized talks, I, I usually, uh, if you look at containers, containers are you know, in, in Linux world are around three different key components. There's uh, container separation on resource restraints. That's a thing called C groups. Uh, that was actually introduced back in the Linux kernel. Uh, around 2008 time frame. I usually base things on when it becomes enterprise quality. So uh, RHEL, RHEL uh, 6 came out in 2008. Um, the other 
area containers is is around what's called namespaces or but that gives you a virtualization feel um, and the first namespace actually showed up in around 2005 2006 time frame um, and I actually we worked on that that was called the mount namespace and then if you look at the third area so you have C groups for uh, resource constraints, uh, resource controls on processes. You have namespaces for virtualization effect on them, and then you have security, right? So you want to add some kind of security to make sure that the processes can't easily break out of the first two confinements. Um, and but if you look at security, it goes all the way back to the beginning of Unix, right? So things like, um, you know, just running processes with different UIDs and stuff like that. And then you get up to SE Linux, which came about in uh, 2001 timeframe and then um, SecComp, which, you know, a few years later and names, you know, additional namespaces, things like that. Um, so this, uh, everything was sort of been evolving in the whole life of Linux. Um, and then Docker came along in, in 2013 timeframe. And, and what Docker really did is, is made using these concepts easy. And the, the real breakthrough that Docker did at that time was a, uh, they, they basically bundled, figured out a way to bundle um, software into a new distribution format. And they called it, at that time, they called it a Docker image. I like to call it a container image. But basically, it's a way to take a whole bunch of software, the application you're working on, plus all the underlying libraries and tools, and you bundle those up into a, a uh, really just a tarball and, and take the tarball and some JSON that describes what's in the tarball, put that together, store it at a website, and Docker called that a, uh, a container image, and then the website called it a container registry. And then they built tooling to just pull these software bundles to a host, set up all the container technology, and start running them. And that's really when people started to, to look at containers as being, you know, and, and, you know, a real thing. But really, the underlying technology all goes back to starting really in route 2000, 2001. And if you look at, you know, set different different stages, namespaces and control groups and things like that coming on, on bound. And I've been working on the technology pretty much from the beginning. Um, but um, so that that's a little bit of history. Well, and you mentioned usually getting sort of interested or really into it when it's enterprise ready. So uh, I just want to mention that um, or, or ask about, because you are known as, I've seen, you're known as Mr. SE Linux. Right. So, so at what point was, I'm just curious, just to now I'm for my own uh, sort of <laughs> understanding of the landscape. At what point did Linux become Enterprise ready was that SE Linux, and then it evolved into RHEL and, and um, no, I, I actually say it, it was enterprise ready before that. So, I mean, I started at Red Hat when uh, Red Hat was still basically shipping software at Best Buy, so it was just basically a box software package that you would go to Best Buy and 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 buy. You know, at that time, Red Hat Linux, you know, six or Red Hat Linux seven. Um, but we'll, at that point in history, we were just shipping um, software every six months, right? So just, and all of a sudden you had um, people liking Linux and they were bringing it into enterprises. And, you know, these enterprises could be great big banks or government and things like that. And they were starting to run actual build servers on top of 
of actually Red Hat Linux at the time. But if you had installed a you know, web service or something like that on top of Red Hat Linux, and then six months later, you would get a new box set or a new CD and you'd have to upgrade. And then six months later, you'd have to upgrade. And six months later, and there was no, so it was a constant churn in Linux at that point. And, and up to this day, there's still a churn, right? Like Fedora and Ubuntu, they're always releasing new, new versions. So what made Linux enterprise ready at the time was more that Red Hat agreed to stop the churn. So what, what, enterprises wanted was basically to have the Linux operating system they'd be able to install it and then have it good for two years and the only thing that they would get updates for would be security fixes right and this so so making something enterprise ready really means that you you stop the speed of innovation you you freeze the speed of innovation and then you just allow backporting of of fixes it also involved someone looking more deeply into security stuff so when I joined Red Hat was before that happened, but really at the at the foreground of that in the first, in the first year. Remember, I think AS two one, which was the first enterprise rel Red Hat Enterprise Linux two dot one is what we called it, came out about um, around two thousand and two timeframe, um, and that really sort of kicked off this slow moving. Um, operating system that would be more stable. Um, simultaneously with that, the United States government uh, at the National Security Agency was developing a, they felt that Linux was too insecure, uh, that actually all operating systems were too, too secure and um, too insecure. And what they wanted was some mechanism, a uh, new mechanism for um, adding security to operating systems. And they, they had developed something called uh, Security Enhanced Linux or SE Linux at the time. And they were having a hard time getting upstream communities to adopt it or get distributions to adopt it. Um, so they came to Red Hat and basically said they wanted to work with us. They wanted to fund us making SE Linux and getting it into the Linux, upstream Linux kernel and uh, getting it into a distribution. And at the time we said, sure, we'd be interested in doing it because it tied up with the enterprise stuff. Um, but the problem we, we also wanted, we didn't want the NSA to just fund the original development and then disappear from the planet. And so the NS, we had an agreement with the NSA national security agency that they would continue to work and develop it over the years. And so now we're 18 years later and then, and they still fund development. Matter of fact, all all Android phones in the world right now are running with SE Linux. They call it SE Android, but it's basically the same thing. So the National Security Agency has still been involved in the whole development process of um, SE Linux. And that's sort of the history at the time. I had just started at Red Hat when SE Linux was happening, and I knew I had a security background, so I, I was assigned to work on SE Linux. And, and over the years, SE Linux now has become one of the fundamental ways that we secure virtual machines as well as securing, um, not now securing containers to uh, on the system. Um, so I still work somewhat in SE Linux, but more towards containers at this point. Um, so that's a little history. That's a fascinating history. And two, two thoughts come to mind. Uh, first thought is my first experiences with Linux are exactly like you're saying in the late 90s, early 2000s. Can't remember the exact year, but going to the bookstore and buying the book and the bundle of the CDs and installing it on the old PC 
uh, totally my first experience. And the other thing which you might find amusing is last year at OzCon, I met the NSA community team because they had a booth there right. and they uh, they were pre-cleared. They were promoting a pre-cleared for a po- conversation and they came on the podcast. So I have an episode with uh, the NSA community team and uh, it ties into this history you mentioned where, you know, fast forward 18 years to today and I think they have 30 or 40 different open source projects that they've released uh, and right. they were they were promoting Ghidra, which is a, a decompiler for like reverse engineering uh, software Um, although they were they were uh, quick to point out don't use it for reverse engineering proprietary software (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah that's great and I think this uh, segues back because part of really the the point of this series is to you know give a little bit of a glimpse inside the black box of of what the enterprise is and show uh, the developer community what a career inside of enterprise looks like so um, if we rewind back to your origin story the very beginning what was the impetus that sparked you on this path and I mean the very beginning was it math class or the ham radio or the so I'm so I'm so old that uh, you know when I graduated high school, I'd never touched a computer in my life. So it was, uh, not, you know, I, I grew up in an era where computers filled the room. So, um, you know, I, I went to, I graduated college in 1982, the first, and at the time, um, you know, growing up in the 60s, the coolest people in the world were the astronauts. Well, in, in my my worldview, the coolest people in the world were wearing white shirts with little tiny black ties, you know, the guys in the in the control room. So if you had asked, you know, me at uh, 13 or 14 years old what I wanted to do, I wanted to be in, in you know, Houston space control and working for NASA. And so that translated my brain. Computers were becoming this interesting thing. So I said, I want to be a computer guy. Um, and I was really good at mathematics. So uh, I ended up going to a college and majoring mathematics because I didn't have a computer science major. And there was a technical school down the street. So I went to Holy Cross College in, uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts, and it was Worcester Polytech. So I would go to school at Holy Cross and also take courses at uh, Worcester Polytech. And the first course I ever took was actually in uh, uh, punch cards. So we actually, uh, um, back in the day, you would have a deck of punch cards and um, you would go to the uh, lab and you'd give it to the, you'd, you'd file them in and, and they would uh, process all your cards. And then two or three hours later, you get the compile back and tell you whether or not your program worked or didn't work. And so that was my first experience in them. When I graduated college with a mathematics degree, I went to uh, work for a, a small uh, company uh, doing software. Um, and then eventually I went to Digital Equipment Corporation. And uh, when I got into Digital Equipment Corporation, I worked a couple of years. And uh, finally, I started working. So I was just a general programmer at that point. And I joined a group working on a thing called Decathena. And our, uh, the history of that is it came out of MIT. Uh, MIT Athena project, and that might not mean much to young people, but they probably have heard of things like Kerberos and X Windows, and um, some of the, the those were the two of the big projects that came out of MIT Athena. And Digital Equipment Corporation at the time was trying to productize that, and I started working on um, Athena, and a lot of that stuff was getting it working on top of Unix platforms at the time. Roll forward a few years, another 
fairly famous historical mark. I went from the Athena project to work on AltaVista project. So AltaVista was the first uh, search engine in the world. Um, but AltaVista, the AltaVista group didn't just do search. They also did um, security products. So I was working on the first firewall and that it was actually the first firewall at the white house. And, uh, I also worked on, um, VPN projects. We, at that time we called them tunnels. Um, but basically taking tunneling traffic over the, uh, ver- you know, the, the brand new internet and figuring out how to do virtual private networks. Um, so I did that for many years. Digital equipment started to fold up. Um, and I eventually digital got bought by Compaq. Um, and uh, AltaVista never spun out of digital. So AltaVista could have been the, the original Google, but it didn't happen. Um, and then I left there, went to work for a company that did, um, it was, the company was called HackerShield and they, they basically tried to use hacker tools. So tools that you would attack a network with and figure out if your network has vulnerabilities and then help you fix the vulnerability. So it's really a vulnerability scanner by using attacking tools. Um, anyways, that company became another company called Bindview. Um, and I worked all this, all this time I was working for this guy named Paul Cormier, who, uh, uh, now is the CEO of Red Hat. So I've worked for Paul Cormier for 30 years now. And he left, he actually at that time left, he was working for the Bindview company that I was working for. He left and joined Red Hat. Um, and six months later, Bindview Basically, yeah, this was during the dot-com bust, folded up, and Paul called me on a Friday and said, hey, you want to work for Red Hat on Monday? And I said, sure, I'll come over and work for Red Hat. And then I've been at Red Hat for the last 19 years, and uh, um, so uh, that's that's my history, and all I sort of fell into security products, and after you've been doing security products for a while, you sort of learn the the lingo and everything else. So it wasn't like I graduated and I loved computer security. It's just, that's where I ended up with. And now I'm well known for working on computer security you know, 30 years later. Um, so that's, that's my history. That is fascinating. And it, it really have followed the, the arc of the technology, uh, you know, at the pulse of it, like the, he mentioned like, you know, the early firewall at the white house, which is right. I yeah, <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, so, sometimes it's sort of like a, you you feel like you're uh, Forrest Gump, and it's like you know you just happen to be in places where things were happening over over the years, um, and uh, so it's been interesting. It's been an interesting career. At what point, or or can you give us insight into the transition that happened w- with uh, OpenShift going from you know like a sort of platform as a service into this Kubernetes-based container platform as a service? Well, I, I, can, give you, I can give you a little extensive history on that because I've been in, in OpenShift since the beginning. So originally OpenShift was, Red Hat formed OpenShift back in 2008, 2009 timeframe. And our main goal was to get developers to develop code on top of um, RHEL. So Red Hat Enterprise Linux 6 at the time. And so when they started developing OpenShift, they were looking at, you know, as a PaaS server, basically to allow developers to get onto a platform, develop code, you know, don't have to, they, you know, we couldn't charge them anything because developers don't pay for software. Um, and so they, they were coming on there and they were developing code. And the, I think at the height of 
OpenShift version one or OpenShift version two, they got up to well over a million users of it. Um, well, if you have a million users working on web services and things like that, we we needed to secure them. So I was, you know, one of the chief guys figuring out how to use things like SE Linux to make sure that all the developers on top of OpenShift did not interfere with each other. And, you know, you have some bad people. When you give people computer resources for free, you know, you tend to attract some unsavory characters, we'll say that. And so we wanted to make sure that we controlled and locked down the systems as best we could. Um, and uh, over the years, we did a very good job with it. So if you think about it, so we were very successful at getting people to working on developing software for RHEL, but it was tied to this web server, web services and things like that. And there was no, what we wanted to do was to get them to be able to develop software that they could then take and figure out how to run it on other rel, rel systems or to help sell into the rel, you know, the greater Red Hat uh, enterprise stuff. And what we ended up having to do is you'd have to sell OpenShift into these environments in order to, to you know, you know, they'd have to run these web services in order to run this software. So it was tied together. So that, that was happening in 2010, 2011, 2012 timeframe. And that was about the time we were coming out with uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7. And Red Hat, uh, so we, 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 I was working on container technology at the time, and it was actually it was very different container technology that Docker, than Docker ended up with. Because um, we, we, at that time, were viewing the world as taking an operating system and then dividing it into containers. So uh, basically sharing slash user around with 50 or 100 containers. So it was sort of what we were doing with OpenShift, but now looking at could we package software and, and somehow get it to use stuff in slash user, but basically isolate it from each other. Um, and so we were working on that, getting all ready to release it for RHEL 7. And um, one of the great things about Red Hat over the years was that you know, we, we realized that something was happening in the open source world that was really starting to explode in importance, and that was Docker. And so about six months before RHEL 7 is going to ship, we had lots of people coming running to me and saying, hey, do you ever look to this thing called Docker? And I said, at that point, I didn't even know about it. And uh, six or nine months later, we had shifted the entire platform to be based on top of Docker technologies. Um, so that, that meant OpenShift was shifting to Docker. So at that point, again, Docker, what Docker brought to the platform was an easy way for us to package up software that the developers were developing and then be able to distribute them so other people could run them anywhere. And now you wouldn't have to run a huge web service to run each one of these containers, you know, each one of the pieces of software on top of a Red Hat Enterprise Linux system, you'd be able to just have, say, a Docker daemon running, a Docker clients running, and you could just run them anywhere. Um, so that was back in 2013, about 2014, 2015, everybody was realizing that Docker worked real well at a node level, but didn't work real well if you went to um, multiple nodes. So once you got to, you know, you know, the enterprise level was we wanted to run 100, and you write an application, you want to run 100 different servers and have it foot fail over and do that stuff. So the first DockerCon, and um, we, Red Hat was working on a thing called Gear, we called it Gear D. It was based on the original OpenShift. 
you know, that was our way of orchestrating, right? So our own language. And we went to DockerCon, and probably half the talks at DockerCon were talking about different ways of orchestrating. You know, there was Mesosphere, there was Docker Swarm was in its infancy. There was we were selling GearD, and Google came in and basically with Kubernetes. And it, um, yet again, the powers at Red Hat realized that Kubernetes was coming off as the most popular um, way of doing this, and so we decided to switch away from. Um, what we were working on, you know, we weren't going to win the uh, hearts and minds, so we might as well dump what we were doing, and we shifted to Kubernetes at that point, and Red Hat quickly became the second largest contributor to the Kubernetes community, and and so that's how it evolved, right? So we've, we'd, we've pivoted many, many times over the years, and, and again, that's the beauty of open source uh, software is we get to watch what all the community is, figure out what's good, what's bad, what's getting community interest, what everybody's gonna is gonna be willing to work on, and then we figure that the goal of Red Hat is to figure out how to productize that, right? Um, I, a lot of times I tell people that Red Hat does the sucky part of Linux, so the sucky part of Kubernetes, so the sucky, uh, so. Uh, uh, the, in, the interesting thing in the open source world is everybody wants to do the the next sexy thing, right? The next uh, cool cool item you can always find lots and lots of people to do that but when you get to enterprises what enterprises care about is uh, I, I need this to run and I need it to run for the next three years and I don't want any new feature coming in that's going to break it running for the next three years and what Red Hat's always been really good at is, is, is figuring out how we can get things stable so really, if you look at our history with OpenShift, once we got to Kubernetes, is all about how do we make Kubernetes stable? Kubernetes changes every three months. And you know, so there's this constant, there's a huge push in upgrades and things like that. And how do we get upgrades to be smooth? How do we get um, you know, the whole, uh, whole container world to be, um, you know, work well? And you know, to, in order to do that, we've, uh, OpenShift has done things like, you know, we, we purchased CoreOS. So we, we originally built a thing called, uh, what we call Project Atomic, which was a stable operating system for running containers. CoreOS was a competitor. Um, and we, Red Hat ended up buying CoreOS and we combined the technologies together in order to, to, build a new operating system for containers that would be stable and, and, and we could work with Kubernetes. So now if you look at uh, the Kubernetes OpenShift version for um, 4.5, 4.4, 4.5, 4.6, it's tied to uh, uh, CoreOS. And again, that's all about stability. So I, I like to tell people, when you look at running containers in the world, right, the Kubernetes world, um, you have the operating system, which is moving at one rate. Then you have what I call container engines or container runtimes. And these are things like Docker and or Cryo and ContainerD, these, these new container engines. They all have a release schedule. And then you have Kubernetes, which has its own release schedule. So if you, if you, uh, up till OpenShift 3 timeframe with Kubernetes, all three of these things were moving at their own rates. So the, the taste test, test matrix was huge, and I, I call it jello, right? You'd have the bottom layer moving, the operating system moving, you'd have the, the runtime, you know, the container engines moving, and then you have Kubernetes moving, and you had the whole thing shifting underneath it. And, and of course, that causes huge stability problems. And with us, with Kubernetes, we want to get it running on 
10,000 nodes, right? We want to get to huge numbers of containers, hundreds of thousands of containers. And what we really needed was a way to lock down all those modes so we could test one entity at a time. And so now if you look at OpenShift 4, we have what we call Relicor OS. And what's in there is we baked in the operating system, we baked in the container engine, and we baked in the level of Kubernetes. So there is no 8.2, we have rel 8.2, rel 8.3, but there's just a Relicor OS that works on this version of OpenShift. And that might have rel 8, underneath it and it might have you know a certain level of container engines underneath it and a certain level of kubernetes but the whole bundle is tested together and therefore we can get to the stability level that a enterprise wants and anybody else that's built you know if you go and compete against regular kubernetes you have sort of the jello mode right so what operating system you're running on at what version of container engines and what version of kubernetes and those are constantly shifting and and so it just becomes something that really can't be tested as a as a unit and doesn't give you the stability so i'll get off my high horse but that's uh, uh, a really cool thing about uh, containerized operating systems like relicor os well, thank you. That was an amazing explanation. And I think it, it gave a lot of insight into, I, I like the term, it's like how the sausage is made. Uh, and it's because, it, you know, I think we all, th there's a lot of popular sort of hype around open source. And it is amazing opportunities for developers to, you know, get involved and, and you know, follow their passion, but also get recognized and build a, a, a path for themselves. But then, like you're saying, you know, there's constant versions and updates, and now you build something and the project goes in another direction. Uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to hear. It's, it's very much an emergent process. Uh, right. I, I like to say that, uh, you know, in the open source world, you know, choice is the greatest thing ever, right? Everybody has choice. You can constantly pivot and choose. Um, but when you get to enterprise customers, what they want is they want an intelligent unit to come in and choose for them, right? It, it's, it's sort of like, yeah, I don't know, if you ever go to a restaurant and they have a menu with, you know, 4,000 items on it and you can't choose anything. Um, but then if you go to a menu with six items on it, it's really easy to choose. And so you, know, you hope that the restaurant made the right six choices for you. And, and, and really what, what Red Hat is bringing to this is we're sort of making opinionated, right? We're, we're learning and studying and always growing on how to do Kubernetes best. And what we will do is pick the proper way that, you know, the way we believe is the best way to run Kubernetes. So we, we believe to be the best version of container engines, or we believe to be the best operating system and then join them all together. So really what you want to do in the enterprise world is you want to pay someone to make smart choices for you and to provide you the stability and the container, you know, the security and, and um, you know, the, the, the trustworthiness, things like that. Um, to the platforms. So folks that are, are already in, you know, enterprise world are probably familiar with this dynamic, but maybe you could comment on this a little bit. Let's say we harken back to your early days in working. I'm sure there was, everything was probably very proprietary, right? Very secret. But now you have this, this world where in one sense, you know, all of these companies are collaborating on the underlying plumbing and, and sharing, but then, and then, they're competing also using those same technologies. So it's, it's a really interesting dynamic that there's collaboration, but then also competition with, uh, like you're saying, making it usable for the customer. 
Right. I mean, it, it, the, so, I mean, my career has gone, you know, this pendulum has swung back and forth. So if you look back to the early days of Unix, right, everything was shareable at the time. I'm talking back in the 60s and 70s. Richard Stallman started introducing, you know, glibc the first glibcs and emacs and tools like that and that was all shareable code or public domain code um, and then microsoft came along and basically figured out how to make money off it and then closed up everything and apple and stuff so um where the open source revolution happened you know it was sort of an ongoing um, experiment but uh, when whenever i look at software it's always you know every vendor is trying to get, you know, to control their customers, right? Everybody wants to, um, to own their customers. And, and, um, and the best, one of the best ways to do that is to either own their data or to own the software that they're going to, to run on. What Red Hat has always been about is, is doing it the open source way, which is the best way to, the best way for us to own our customers is to do a good job for them. And, and that, that puts a constant stress on us, but, um, you know, we have to, you know, constantly perform. Otherwise, customers can just go and use CentOS or just go and use the open source projects to, to replace us. And so that's, that's always been a, a great goal of, of, you know, Red Hat. And, and, um, and I actually, you know, since this is a little bit for IBM, IBM has helped fund a lot of this, you know, way, going way back to when they first gave the billion dollars to uh, Linux back in the early 2000s. Um, uh, so that's the way we've always worked, and I've always been very against closed source software, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, now what I see is is a lot of vendors trying to use open source software to lock in companies um, to their their ways of doing it. And I, I talk about cloud vendors all the time, um, and you have the Amazon and I mean, the three big, the Amazon and Microsoft and Google are all looking to uh, somehow lock you into their, you know, they might be using open source software, but what they want you to do is lock you into their proprietary protocols. Um, and I, I call this, uh, again, I always use cartoon analogies, but uh, Hansel and Gretel, you know, you go to the witch's house and uh, you're all right, but, you know, you see the sweet candy that's sitting there and you start eating the candy and next thing you know, you're in a cage. That's the way I like to talk about Amazon is all about, yeah, you can come and use our, our, you know, rel instances or our operating systems instances, but we have this really cool, you know, uh, file system layer S3 and, you know, you can start using some of that. Oh, we have these really cool services that will provide you. You can start using that. And all of a sudden, you know, six months, a year, year later, you know, your, your software is based on top of Amazon's protocols and, you know, Microsoft Azure comes along and says, I can give you a, 10% discount if you move to here and all of a sudden you say, well, realize that you can't move your data out because you built your software on proprietary protocol. So they've locked you in. Um, so really with the, the beauty of OpenShift is all about preventing that type of lock-in. You know, our, our goal is to provide enough of the services and you can build on top of our services and you should be able to run your workloads on top of Amazon, on top of Azure, on top of um, uh Google or even top of, you know, IBM's cloud or on top of VMware or on top of your local physical hardware. And you, really what you want is that flexibility because in my opinion, when you go into the cloud world, it, you know, a lot of companies, you know, realize that they can go into the cloud world and get um, services up and running really quickly. But if those services become really, really popular, 
their bill, right, their rental bill is just going to go up and up and up. And at a certain point, it becomes more sensible to build inside, right, to, to build your own data centers and, and try to get, but now try to get your data out of the cloud and into your own data centers. And it becomes impossible if you've, you know, done the Hansel and Gretel candy stuff, you were in a cage, you can't get out a unless you use something like OpenShift and, and open, truly open source software. So even if you're, you can use OpenShift without using Red Hat, um, but, you know, if you want to have a supported platform from a company that can help you prevent that lock-in so that you can move around. My, my, my dream is at some point you're sitting in an OpenShift console and you're running, you know, 75% of your workload inside of Amazon, 25% locally, and Microsoft sales rep calls you up and says, if you move 50% of your workload to us, we will save you 5% on cost. And all you do is you press a button on your console and all of a sudden 50% of your workload shifted over to Microsoft and, you know, seamlessly and, and you're, you're suddenly saving money and you, so you can get, you could get competition levels at the cloud vendors to, to make them compete for, uh, instead of getting lock-in, you know, you basically have this, you know, you're, you're, you're able to offer them, you know, uh, a, a, the ability to compete. Um, the other thing is if you think about it, uh, you know, OpenShift is all about running containerized workloads on all these different areas, um, or and it competes against cloud uh, instances of Kubernetes. But if I'm Amazon Cloud, you know, I'm really trying to drive you to get your workloads off of your own data centers into their cloud, and so I can lock you in and make more money. And in our world, we don't care. You know, OpenShift doesn't really care where you run your workloads, right? It's just you you run your workloads in the places that make sense, not trying to always suck you into the cloud instances. So it's a different way of looking at it. But I mean, the beauty of open source is always has prevented lock-in in the past, right? So you you didn't have to run your stuff all on an HP, you know, certain HPs or or you know, back in the day, digital vaxes or on top of IBM's hardware, right? You could pick and choose whoever gave you the best deal for your hardware and then just run your software on it. So, you know, it became competitive. Now in the container world, we want to make sure that we have the same type of competitiveness in in the cloud world. So where you want to run your virtual your environments is easily flexible to be able to move around the environment. That really makes sense and sort of fills out or fleshes out an ideal model of how the hybrid multi-cloud would work. That, right. that you would be able to actually do that. Because, you know, like you said, if, if you read just the first slide of the brochure, oh, it's open source, I, I could move this anywhere. But when you dig a little deeper, sometimes that, that's not so much the case in the, in the fine print or the, the devil in the details, so to speak. I think you did a, a fantastic job there of laying out how does, how does OpenShift fit into this, this hybrid multi-cloud world to give you the most flexibility and the best performance. Another another expression. I, uh, Amazon loves to show this uh, video of of the Amazon truck. That they'll send you a a you know sixteen wheeler to your office to with all sorts of computer power on it, and uh, we'll take all your data and you put it into this truck, and then the truck drives off to data you know Amazon data centers and takes your data, and boom, your data is inside the cloud, and you are up and running. And, you know, that sounds like a wonderful story, um, but I always tell people that truck doesn't have reverse, right? That truck does never comes back. Yeah, so, you know, if you get in there and you don't like what you got, 
you can't get out. Um, so uh, it's just something people need to think about when they're taking advantage of these services. So let me ask you this. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any uh, closing thoughts you might have for our uh, developer audience? Developers are the ones developing the applications that are going to run inside your container environment. And what I want application developers to think about is what are the security needs of my application? Um, because if I go Goldilocks, I'm basically giving every container has this level of security, need, needs this level of security to run. And that, that, that security has to cover all possible use cases. If you build a container image and you could specify something in the container image that says, my image doesn't need as much you know, um, security as the general purpose, I can actually run with a lot tighter security and they could put that information into the container image, then the con our container engines could read that data and say, well, instead of running with this fairly loose policy, I'll write with a tighter policy. And so that's, that's sort of what I've been pushing. That's what I'll be pushing for the next year is, is trying to get developers to think a little bit about, you know, how much, you know, what, what security requirements do I have for my application? And these are things like, I don't want to get too technical because I don't know how technical your audience is, but uh, this thing's called Linux capabilities, which are sort of subsections of the power of root. And my application might only need set UID and set GID, but um, uh, containers by default get 14 capabilities. Mine might only need two of those 14. So if I could specify that in the image, I could run it more securely. Um, another thing would be seccom filters and and we're building tools to help those help the developers understand that and be able to to generate you know this is the only this is really the only security my application needs and then that would allow us to run the individual applications much more securely than we do at this point so but anyways this is a good general talk thanks for having me thank you very much dan i really appreciate you uh being on the podcast slash video.